You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That's how I go through life. Always, always, always just grasping Grasping at, for the, just the like runaway train. Just like looking for the next word. Yeah. Because like, as soon as something comes out of my mouth, I just am trying to suck the words right back in because I realize two words into the sentence that I have no way of ending it. I feel like who Art Ed? Who Art Ed? Mr. Wood, Art Ed, me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. So welcome. Today I am here with David Pittman again. Again. Oh my thank goodness, I'm so, so sorry. Much. Yeah, no, thank um, you for having me back. I appreciate that. You're always so generous with your time. Oh. And I'm going to pretend it's not because as a learning coach, you are probably contractually obligated to help me with... Whatever windmill I want to tilt at. This oh, week. no, no. Just uh, <laughs> morally obliged to help you. Today we're going to be talking about Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. Now for our in situ segment. It just gives us some context. It's about the artist and where this came where this all came from. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was um, born in 1452, passed away in 1519. He had no surname. It's funny, we always refer to him as da vinci but really da vinci is just saying the town he's from it'd be like if people referred to me as from wheaton you know but leonardo da vinci his full name at birth was leonardo di ser piero da vinci which means leonardo son of piero from uh, vinci now leonardo was considered by most people to be the quintessential renaissance man or renaissance person in that he was just so interested in so many diverse fields. He studied everything from drawing and painting and sculpture and architecture to science, music. He was an inventor. He studied mathematics, literature, anatomy, geology, astronomy, botany, paleontology, cartography, everything. He was just dabbling, and I shouldn't even say dabbling because he was mastering so many different things, and he was interested in constantly learning, and that's really what the Renaissance spirit was all about. It was that enlightenment and that thirst for knowledge and trying to figure out how things work. The scientific method was really coming into its Mm -hmm. own in that period. Yeah, Um, floodgates of knowledge, which is like, oh, we can all access it now. And yeah. now we can we can go and search out our own understanding. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of his work was proof of that mastery and that technical sort of studied approach to art. At age 14, Leonardo started working and studying at the workshop of Verrocchio. 
he was a prominent painter and sculptor, and a, a number of well-known painters uh, went through that, including Botticelli. But Leonardo spent seven years studying at that workshop, and he became an apprentice. And he worked collaboratively with uh, Verrocchio. A lot of us think of like the the painter working solo, mm-hmm. you know. But in that time, the prominent painter had a workshop, and there were assistants who were creating a lot of the like a lot of the simpler tasks, like the washes that might go in the background, and then the the master artist would put the final details on there. They'd do the hard stuff. Well, uh, the story goes, and it's debated whether or not this is actually true, but it's a great story, so I'm not going to let that stop me. Leonardo was working collaboratively with Verrocchio on a painting, and Leonardo was demonstrating such mastery that exceeded Verrocchio's that he put down his brush and never painted again. Ooh. Which, I don't know if that speaks more highly of Leonardo or just a backhanded way of, like, attacking Verrocchio. Yeah, like, he's just a quitter. <laughs> like, he doesn't have any game. He's yeah. just like, okay, he's just I'm, like, I'm, gone. I'm, gone. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Hand it in. Or, or he switched to sculpture, you know? Because oh, I think Verrocchio studied under, like, Donatello. It's basically, like, you know, all the Ninja Turtles were, like, Yeah, they're all working together. together. Yeah, um, which is what, what they do. Yeah. I mean, the Ninja Turtles actually were named after Renaissance artists. Yes. That is a fun fact yes. for those who love the Ninja Turtles. Splinter was a really uh, into Renaissance. He was. After working there, he, at age 20, qualified as a master artist in his own right, joined the Guild of St. Luke, which was a guild of artists and medical doctors. I guess in that time, those, those were a linked profession. Mm-hmm. Same guild. Right. You know, doctor. Today, not so much. Yeah. Less schooling. We see we see we see things a little bit differently, mm. but I, I guess those were the two professions that were um, working on cadavers back then. So even after leaving and starting his own workshop, you know Leonardo did still respect and very much was fond of Verrocchio, and they still collaborated and I, I believe even lived together for a while after that. The Mona Lisa, also referred to as La Gioconda, La Gioconda or the laughing one. Um, She is known for that sort of enigmatic smile that we all talk about as we Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, it's that iconic figure, you know, the Mona Lisa smile. That that was a movie even, wasn't it? Mona Lisa smiles a movie. And it's like in some Harry Connick Jr. song. It's, It's like hard to escape the Mona Lisa. And like when you ask some, like the average person on the street, like what's the greatest painting ever? It's the Mona Lisa. It is, in, it is, I think, valued at about $100 million in, in the Louvre. It's like behind bulletproof glass. So many people swarm to see it. But an interesting fact is it was not exceptionally famous about 100 years ago. It didn't become really, really well known outside of art circles until it was stolen from right. the Louvre. 1911, right? Yeah. It was stolen. And the thing I love about that story is... It was stolen by a dude who just put it under his coat and then yeah. walked out. Yeah, well, like, and he, he, has the, he has the classic just stay in the closet until everyone's <laughs> gone. Yeah. Like, we've been trying to replicate ever since then, and, and not only in, uh, as a teenager, but also just like in every movie, like just go to the bathroom, lock yourself in, and then just steal everything. 
Yeah, like you hear about, like every once in a while you read those stories about someone who just like hid somewhere in Ikea and just stayed there overnight or something like that. But I always find it funny because I, growing up, would watch movies where it's like everything, there's a grid of lasers and these sophisticated capers. But actually a lot of art heists in history have happened where someone just ran into the museum, grabbed the thing yeah. that was closest to the door, and then ran out. Or in this case, he put it under his coat and then walked out after it, after it closed. And it was, I think, a day or two before they were even sure that the painting had been stolen. Oh, god! That's how low profile it was. I think people noticed it was missing, but they were like, eh, maybe it's out for cleaning. Mm. We're not sure. It wasn't like alarms going off and everyone everyone is worried now that's not to say the painting was not well known it was sort of known in art circles so mm -hmm. other artists would have known about that painting and respected and valued that painting it was even in like the renaissance days i mean Raphael made his own version of the mona lisa mm -hmm. like People throughout history recognized the, the brilliance and the mastery of Leonardo da Vinci, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of in the pop culture mainstream until the painting went missing, and it was missing for about two years, and people were looking for it. It, would, it started to gain more headlines, and as the, the image started to appear in newspapers and things like that, as stories started to come out, then people started to say, well, what's all, what's all this fuss about with this painting? It eventually turned up, it was, it was in that guy's living room for like two years. Nice. He had it in his apartment. He just had his friends over and he's like, <laughs> I took this painting under my coat. Check well, me out. Well, he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to take it out of Paris and return it to Italy. Oh. He felt like it should be um, it should be in an Italian museum, and that's eventually how he got caught. He was trying to arrange for it to go into an Italian museum, and that's where that's where he got caught. So he held it in his apartment, just like in his living room, waiting for sort of the heat to die down for people to stop caring, which they didn't. I love the and, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't care that at all. No, they didn't stop caring. They kept oh, they looking kept, for. Okay. You know, it would still pop up, and that's why two years later, when he tried to sell it to the museum, it was he was promptly caught. I love the the part about the story that like it's got like a a, a headline cast of characters. The, the like, hey, we think it's this poet. Uh, yeah. Apollinaire, and then and then he's like, no, 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 no. I think uh, it was Pablo. Pablo. Pa he was Picasso. Picasso's got to be in there. Of course, Picasso's got to somehow be in there. And so it's this kind of like you can see it as like an Ocean's Eleven, uh, you know, playing these roles. And like, you, no, 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 it's him. And then it's just some guy in the broom. It was closet. like a custodian or something right. It's like not, that. you know, it's not a it high was, profile. It's just this. Just it's just someone who worked an at Italian the patriot. Yeah, but it, it's it's also kind of like small world back then. That like yeah you know yeah. like all these famous people seem to interact in some way. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full '90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music 
and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now for our in-gallery segment, we're going to have a discussion looking more carefully at One Piece. What do you notice at first? What jumps out at you? So I know everyone always talks about the smile, and you know that would be easy to say, but really with her, her eyes um, come out to me first as the first thing that I'm drawn to. Yeah. Um, they're big. They're also to the side, um, as if uh, a skewed glance over towards me. Um, and I know people say like it kind of follows you as you move. Yeah. Uh, that that angle that he created, um, and then that does like it draws me down through her nose, like through her nose to her mouth. It's like your your brain's kind of processing the facial features then and what kind of yeah. you're getting, and then that's where the smile. And when I look at it, you know, that that right side where where it's just tilted up, and the fact that the other side has that kind of tucked into the cheek shadowing yeah um that's where it's it, it really throws you throws your throws you in or pulls you in i should say yeah and you want to know what kind of smile that is yeah um so as we're looking at this portrait she's not directly facing the viewer she's at a slight angle i'd say she's looking it, it's it's almost like the standard school portrait pose where she's she's sitting and she's looking yeah. at like almost like the body is tilted at slightly not quite a 45 degree angle and the head is turned just a little bit towards the mm-hmm. towards the the viewer um so like her face is kind of even with the picture plane, but her body is like her shoulders are at a slight angle. She's looking off to the side. She's looking off to her left, the viewer's right. And we see her hands sort of folded across her lap. The, the classical sort of Renaissance drape, like long flowing mm-hmm. drapery and a landscape behind her that it's funny because that landscape to me feels like it is a set backdrop. You know what I'm it saying? Does have like that it feel is to it. fuzzy and it is mm-hmm. so like it is not defined in the same way that she is. Um, and it seem it feels less real to me. It also feels almost like like portrait mode on our cameras, where it's like right. the person is in in hyper focus and the background kind of just blurs out. That's what we refer to as atmospheric perspective, where we're using sort of the way that we see things very sharp detail up close and things look sort of fuzzier as they go off in the distance mm-hmm. and they look more pale and more blue because of the way the light scatters through the atmosphere. So Kyle, my question is like painters during this time, like was that, you know, common to have the background look very, um, out of focus, not very out of focus, but it's just not, out of focus. Or? No, it's not exceptionally common from, from the, I'm no Renaissance expert to be 
totally honest, I find Renaissance paintings to be kind of boring because most of them are, most of them are very staged, um, like European Renaissance paintings at that time. You're mostly looking at important historical figures. You're talking about like religious figures. Everything is sort of symbolic. And, you know, at that time, so many people were illiterate that a lot of the important culture was conveyed through images. Um, But also you think about who has the money to commission a painting. Only the rich. You know, the rich people, the church did for for various, very obvious reasons. And so those, like, those were the people at the top and it was their values that were put out there. And it, it, to me, it always felt very staged, very put on. Mm -hmm. I didn't generally like it. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but across the board, I would say this is not the standard technique. Although Leonardo da Vinci was known for using that, um, that scoop, Sfamato. 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 Yes. Using that sfam- uh, he was, you know, smudging basically to to create those shadows and blend things. And he was definitely purposely aware of the atmospheric perspective. A lot of other artists, in my experience, were a little bit more focused on the linear perspective, mm. which is using lines and size relationships to create a sense of depth and space. In this painting, one of the things that really stands out to me, which I think is the main thing that people like, you know, when it's referred to as the laughing one, there's a coyness to that to that expression on her face. The shadows over, especially at the corners of the mouth, create a little bit of am- ambiguity. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I, and I can't credit who pointed this out to me first, but it's, it's always stuck with me. If you... If you masked off the bottom half of her face and just looked at the eyes, the expression feels different than if you mask off the top half and look at the mouth. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It seems kind of shifty. Seems a little bit sh- oh, yeah. like she's she seems a little bit shady and a little bit dodgy there. I feel like you could check in with Mona Lisa each day and see how you're yeah. feeling about yourself. Like however yeah. how, whichever side you're you're looking at, like oh yeah. I'm I'm not feeling too great about myself today. I'm feeling like she's like glaring at me. Yeah. And or like hey, is that, hey, like we're at a party, like good to see you, Mona. And like you know, because yeah. it is really a, it, it. What do you what do you see in her? Like it's, you know, and there's different it's, days. It's an early Rorschach. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's one of the things that I think is most interesting about this piece. It's that ambiguity because I feel like so much was planned out and very carefully laid out. I mean, not to say that this is not carefully planned and laid mm-hmm. out, but so many other paintings of that time, it felt like everything was very blatant, very readable. It, you know, it was painting as text. Like you look at the Sistine Chapel was, mm. a, you know, the, tells the whole story. Uh, it was like, and that was contemporary for that time. It was, um, that was another thing that was happening at that time. Leonardo just didn't happen to be one of the ones, you know, Michelangelo was best known for that. But, you know, if you look at Leonardo's Last Supper, everything, it is the entire story through the arrangement of the mm-hmm. figures in in that that piece. It is telling us everything that we need to know. Whereas in this one, there's a little left to the imagination. Yeah, I I feel like that's a little bit more modern 
in the approach mm-hmm. where there's a, it, it asks it a little bit more from the viewer. Or it leaves room for the viewer to to imagine and make other connections. You no, know, he does the pull pull you. I mean, he, the, the 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 focus is he pulls your focus right into that where he wants you, where the most ambiguity mm-hmm. is. He yeah. pulls you right into the face. There's the most light there. There's the the most actual detail in a little bit behind her with some of it. Yeah. There's, there's most going on, most going on, and then the, with the dress and the draping and the hands are even, you know, in a more shadowed position. Yeah. Um, it you just it's almost like you could cut off that bottom half and your 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 eyes don't even kind of go there until it's just looking for something else to to find. But you really are just sucked into that top half right into the face. I guess we should end the in studio segment with if you could take this out of the Louvre. Where should this go? Well, now I'm I'm all about uh, our guy from the Louvre, uh, Vincenzo Perugia. I want to in, in Italy, back back to Italy in a museum. Uh, but if I had to take it out there, I don't know. It, it, it's uh, as I was thinking about this, I knew this was coming. Yeah, it's some kind of fun house, like some kind of really creepy fun house where like the eyes move. Yeah. because I want or something where I want to unsettle somebody. But that's where I went with it. Yeah. I think my my favorite thing is that it was just in some dude's apartment for two years. I think that's where it should go. It should just go. Mm. It should go from apartment to apartment, just anonymously, just be passed around under people's coats, just like you know, next to the dogs playing yeah. poker. Yeah, with a good story. You know, like, I got that. I got that from hiding in the broom closet. Yeah. Go in someone's living room for a while, and then someone else's. I'm done with Mona Lisa. I'm gonna send her mm. back. Have you ever wondered? who the Mary was from Bloody Mary, if the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked. On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our in-studio segment. In-studio Think segment. about what strategies are working. Take it. Good Make artists. it your own. Copy. Great artists. Steal. Just go ahead. Steal this art. Make it your own. These are the takeaways. This is what you can apply to your own work. What would be your first takeaway? Or would you like me to go first? I can go first. Um, you know, I think one of the... It was a painter's painting, right? Like, for a long yeah. time. And it was about, you know, seeing this high form of craftsmanship. And, you know... The story, not just the stories of the painting, but the story of Leonardo himself coming from from nothing through knowledge of all kinds of of different disciplines, just a thirst for knowing more and more and more to go into his art or go into his inventions and sculptures and so on. Just that idea of renaissance that I can't learn anything uh, in a silo. I have to pull from everywhere um, and and not discount something is not relevant to my craft that it could help me um by pulling in from somewhere else a good painter also knows a bit about science they know about anatomy and and also i've i've heard that harvard is now having doctors study art because it helps them to be to develop more empathy in a better bedside manner and i think back to the guild of saint luke it totally is but it's that idea that a good a good artist does his or her homework and learns about different things to draw in different subject matters, and that diverse knowledge helps you that ba- that wider background. How about you? To me, I I look at this and I think what makes something really captivating 
is when there's something to discover. The other thing I would say is just in a technical sense, a dry brush technique is fantastic. A lot of people like to load up their brush. Like I see people getting so much paint on their brush all the time in my classroom. But if you want to get those really subtle details, the shadows, those highlights, that smooth transitions from the highlights to the midtones to the shadows, get wipe the paint off the brush. You know, get just the tiniest bit, layer it, work in layers, start with the midtone, then bring in a little bit of shadow at the and darken the edges. Then, you know, clean your brush, get a little bit of a lighter color, bring in those highlights, those pops of those lighter colors. The most common mistake that students make is everything's in this middle gray sort of mid-tone and you need that contrast when we, when I look at the Mona Lisa I see a very big difference between the brightest lightest spots on her skin and the darkest shadows on her skin mm. it's almost that it's sort of that full range of values is present there and and that's what makes her look real and alive it's those shadows and highlights that depth of color and a dry brush technique can be fantastic for that anything else i got nothing yeah i got nothing that's that's what i say when i look at the mona lisa i got nothing i got nothing it's good it's good i can't go She's yeah. smiling i got kind nothing. of kind of anyone can kind of smile can i just point that out like how hard is that yeah it's hard it's easy to do it's harder to paint guess obviously phenomenal talent there as well mm -hmm. don't yeah. want to deny that but you know i always want to point out the difference between a successful artist and a not so successful artist is rarely the amount of talent it's more the persistence and the time and the effort and the consistent effort applied because the standout talent stops standing out if they stop working mm -hmm. you know he never stopped working, and that's why he is still the standout 500 years later. That's why his work is most prized in the Louvre. It's not just mastering how to paint. It's, it's all, of, all of these different fields that you can, you can be master, or masterful in or learn about, yeah. and then bringing that into your art, that you're not just an artist, that you can go out anywhere out in the world and bring that into your art.